You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. Good to see you this morning. For those that are here in this room, those that are also in our fellowship hall right now watching this, grateful you're with us. Uh, If you are just joining us, my name is Shay Sumlin. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful you're with us. We are continuing in a study that we've started here in the book of Genesis. And so if you have your Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, if you remember from last week, if you were with us, uh, when we left off last week in our study of Genesis, things weren't too good in, in there in Genesis, the paradise that was found in Genesis 1 and 2 from God creating the heavens and the earth and creating everything that's within it for his glory, for our good, for human flourishing, that paradise was lost in chapter 3. We looked at the first seven verses last week of chapter 3 and we saw that all of a sudden when evil and temptation show up and the desires within man are of pride to want to become like God, then all of a sudden you see a man beginning to replace dependency upon God with his own moral autonomy. And this is what we saw last week. In doing so, our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled. They rebelled against God, sin entered into the world, and the innocence that was once enjoyed is now undone and it is replaced with shame, and with brokenness. So if verse seven last week was the fall, then verses eight through 24 of chapter three is gonna be the fallout. And what we're gonna see this week are really three things, three movements in this passage that I want you to pay attention to because it's not just for Adam and Eve. It sets the course for everything that you and I encounter as well in our day. But you're gonna see the confrontation of sin, you're gonna see the consequences of sin and ultimately we're gonna see the cure for sin all here in this text. The first place we're gonna start though is with the confrontation of sin. And the big idea is this, is that our sin needs to be confronted. Any human sin needs to be confronted if indeed we are going to receive forgiveness and restoration that God wants to provide for us. We need to come out of the darkness. We need to bring our sin into the light in order for God to cover it with the right covering, not with the wrong coverings. That's what we're gonna see in this text. I want you to follow along with me. We're gonna read first verses eight through 13 as we look here at the the confrontation of sin. And so they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what we learn here in this passage is sometimes shortly after 
their rebellion, after sin entered into the world, God comes looking for Adam and Eve. Now, a lot of us get hung up right here. We don't wanna go any further because we're like, ooh, God was walking in the cool of the day. They heard his footsteps. What was that like? What form was he in? Like, what did God actually look like? What are we, what are we seeing here? And I got wonderful theological answer for you here. We don't know. We don't know. Most scholars believe this to be, and I agree, this is a theophany. A theophany is when God appears. He's not incarnating, but he's appearing almost anthropomorphically like a representative of like how we would understand someone to act. And God is communicating in a way, somehow appearing and communicating with his creation in a way that they could grasp. This is giving us some form of intimacy that was certainly experienced in a unique way pre-curse. But post-curse, everything changes. Whatever this was, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, what we experience today is God in a mirror dim. We're not quite sure. Our communication's by faith, not by sight. But there is a day coming, Paul says, when we shall behold God face to face. That day is still ahead of us. The point here, though, that you need to note is not what God looks like, but how he approaches us in the midst of our sin. That's what we're meant to see here. The picture we see here is not one of terrorizing wrath. It's one of parental concern. He doesn't explode in anger here when his children sin. He doesn't incinerate them right on the spot. He doesn't fly off the handle as I am so prone to do. No, he lovingly pursues. Same he's gonna do all throughout the rest of scriptures, whether it's with Moses, whether it's with David, whether it's with Jonah, or whether it's with his wayward children in Luke chapter 15. He will confront because he's not passive. He will discipline here in just a moment because that's what a good loving parent does. But what you're meant to see first and foremost about God in the midst of our own rebellion and sin is that he lovingly pursues. It's what our God does. And what you're gonna see here is God not putting Adam and Eve on blast, but instead what he's gonna do is he's gonna ask them four introspective questions that are meant to help them identify where they are in relationship to God so that they might be drawn out of hiding and back into relationship with God. That's what he's going to do here. However, one of the effects of sin and shame when it comes to our fallen state and our fallen minds under sin here is that we have a knack of misinterpreting the pursuit of God as something harsh. And when that happens, we respond accordingly because we assume that God hates us for what we've done. We assume that God is out to get us for what we've done. We assume that God wants to put us on blast and shame us. We assume that God wants to bring about our destruction because of what we've done. We, we instantly conclude that in our mind. And as a result, what you're gonna see next in this text is you're gonna see Adam and Eve do the two oldest, most instinctive human responses in the book the oldest play that you and I still continue today, and that is the game of hiding and blaming. And this is what we do. First, you see 
hiding here. You see the hiding game began in verse eight. Now, remember, they've already sought to cover themselves uh, from their nakedness in verse seven when they sewed fig leaves together and tried to cover up their private parts here. And now, once they hear God coming, they immediately flee. They immediately run. They immediately go try to hide and notice the language from the presence of God. Can, let me ask this a question real quick. Can you actually hide from the presence of God? It's like an elephant hiding behind a telephone pole. It's not really going to work. God, you can't hide from God's presence. Can you really hide from an omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God? No, Ecclesiastes 12 says that God sees everything that is done in secret. The things that we think we have hidden, the things that we think we can get away from, God sees it all. There's no hiding from the presence of God. You can't escape the presence of God. And God promises in Exodus 34, seven, he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. He sees it and it will be dealt with. Now, the first thing that you're gonna see God do here is he's gonna confront the man. Now, why is that significant? Even though Eve ate first, it is the man who is held responsible because he was appointed as the head of his bride. Now, make no mistake, Eve will be accountable for her sin. You'll see that in just a moment. Adam will be accountable for his sin. You'll see that in just a moment. But Adam is also responsible for both of their sin in this moment. And so God approaches him first. And he asks him an interesting question in verse nine. Where are you? Now, again, it's not as if God doesn't know. It's not as if God's out there in the garden. Where are you? I can't find you. Can you give me some, can you send me a pin? Can you show me the GPS coordinates where you're at? God is not after a GPS location right here. It's not that, Adam, that God doesn't know. It's that Adam doesn't know. That's the key. And God isn't seeking an answer from Adam here in this moment as much as he is inviting Adam into a response. He's wanting to draw Adam out. He wants Adam to be awakened to the reality of where Adam is located spiritually, and that is apart from God, in rebellion to God. He's bringing Adam to his senses right here. And so he invites a response, and Adam responds there in verse 10. And notice Adam doesn't provide a GPS location. He, he understands what God is after, and what he responds with, however, is all the hallmarks of shame three key things that are right here, an awareness of God, the fear of being exposed, and self-protection. This is what shame induces in us. We, we're aware of God's presence. We're aware of God's pursuit, but we mistake that pursuit as something harsh. We have a fear of being exposed. We don't want our nakedness exposed before him. And so we go self-protect by hiding. Now, understand there is a kind of guilt and there is a kind of shame that is actually good and needed when we sin. That itself can be a gift from the Lord of showing us our own, as it would be, forensic guilt before God, a knowledge that we have transgressed him, that we have fallen short of his glorious standard and we are not located where we were created to be, which is in his presence, abiding in his word. We have drifted. And that guilt, that version of shame, that's a good thing because that particular guilt and shame is intended to drive us back to God 
so that we can receive his forgiveness. We can receive his restoration, but instead we are deceived in our sin and we allow that guilt and shame to actually drive us further away from him. And that is a false guilt and a false shame that leads us away from God. But yet we all do it. We all have the same fear within us of being exposed, of being embarrassed by what we've done, or even being embarrassed by the things that have been done to us when we've been victimized by others. And we have this sheer terror of others finding out about this. And so we begin to sow our own proverbial fig leaves and whatever material they may be in our day and age, we try to cover ourselves with other things. And we run and we hide and we fool ourselves into thinking that maybe if I can hide, if I can delete my hard drive, if I can clear the search history, if I can cover the marks with sleeves on my arms, if I can, if I can uh, consume myself with work, or if I can ditch church, or if I can ditch my roommates or ditch my family members, then maybe they won't see me as I see me. And we, and we think maybe we can cover this thing up and all behind it is this fear that if they fully knew about us, what we know about us, then they wouldn't love us and they wouldn't accept us. And we take that, and that by the way is because of the deceit of shame and it's also because that's what's been modeled for us by other sinners. And we then project that upon God and assume the same of him. But here's what's wild. Just like with Adam, God already knows where we are. He already knows everything about you. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden, and yet he still loves us. While being fully known, we are still fully loved. And you know where you see this the most put on display? At the cross of Jesus Christ. It's where you see this truth in its clearest form. Uh, We see the gospel, Romans chapter five, verse eight says this, God shows us his love in this. And yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross in this moment, this is the beauty of the cross. It tells us we are fully known because on that cross was all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all the hidden things that we thought we got away with. They were there on the cross on Jesus. And yet at the same time, God so loved you and he so loved me that he put his son on that cross to absorb the penalty that our sin was due. The shame that we had was then put on him. The curse that we were under was laid upon him because he loved us. You are fully known and you are fully loved and you'll never see that any more clearly than you do on the cross. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore and there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less because he doesn't love you based on your performance or your lack thereof. He loves you based on the provision that is in Christ. This is the good news. And God in this moment, he is bidding Adam and Eve and the same with us to come out of hiding. I've mentioned before, the oldest game in human history is hide and seek. 
It's got to be the oldest game. And you remember when you played it as a kid, right? There's always a searcher and then there's everybody, all the sinners and they all go run. We all go hide and we try to find our best hiding jobs. And some of us aren't good at it at all. Horrible at that game. And others are really, really good at it. But at the end of the game, eventually when the time's up, if there's still somebody trying to hide, remember what the searcher calls out loud in order to bring everybody back to home base. In the old days, it was a Latin phrase, Ali Ali oxen free. And I've shared before, that doesn't mean they were saying, let the oxen free in this moment. That's not what that phrase means. It means come out, come out wherever you are. It's an invitation to come out of hiding. And in many ways, mark this moment, God is shouting in the sweetest way that a father can to his wayward children, Ali Ali oxen free. Come out, come out wherever you are. And the truth is, and you know this to be true, and I know this to be true, when we hide, we are as David confessed in Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, it's as if my bones were wasting away under the noonday sun. It's exhausting playing hide and seek with God. And he's wanting you to come into freedom. Y'all, I had years, years of hidden sexual immorality in my life where I was rebelling from God in relationship after relationship and sexual promiscuity. And I just wanted to hide it from everybody. And I felt I was dying inside. I felt like Psalm 32 in that moment. It wasn't until I got to college and it was invited into a community where I was actually felt the trust and freedom to begin to confess my sin to confess it to one another and confess it before God. And in that moment, I experienced healing for the very first time in my life. The freedom that comes from actually confessing my sin. And that's why I'm not ashamed to stand up here right now and tell you about my broken past because you know why? Because praise God, I love you, but I don't need your affirmation. I don't need your approval. I don't need your acceptance because I've already got it at the cross. And it's a lifetime guarantee. And I can step into that and so can you. You can come out of the shadows if you'll just get honest with your sin. But unfortunately, instead of accepting the invitation to freedom, Adam and Eve, when they're caught, immediately enter into the next phase and it moves from hiding to blaming. And this is such a classic deal. God asked in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? What God is saying here, he's getting them to understand, you have now believed an alternative narrative. There is now a rival authority that has entered in your life. There is now a rival narrative that has entered in that is not the truth that I have given you, that is not the truth that I am, that you have believed. And he's trying to get them to see that. There is another word that they have listened to. And so he asked this question and now the classic response of blame shifting. Verse 12, watch Adam just work it right here. Well, it's the woman just throws his wife under the bus. How dirty can you get right here? How low can you get? Throws his wife, is this woman, this woman, she's the one, she fell into the temptation. She grabbed the fruit, she gave it to me. It was this woman, you can see the process going. And then he starts going, it was the woman that you gave that you gave me. 
It wasn't just the woman. It was you, God. It's your fault. Had you not taken her out of my side, I wouldn't be sitting here right now before you wearing these swank fig leaves right now. It's you, God. This whole thing is your fault. And we do the same thing. We blame others. We blame God. He then turns to the woman in verse 13. She does the same thing, only she blames the serpent. She blames the one who deceived her. This guy duped me. That's what happened here. And again, we do this all the time. Instead of rejecting passivity, accepting responsibility and leading out courageously, we go blame hunting. We blame our spouse. We blame our roommates. We blame our parents. We blame our siblings. We blame our coworkers. We blame stress, we blame anxiety, we blame unmet expectations. We blame the system, we blame social media, we blame politics, we blame circumstances, we blame being tired, being bored, we blame being busy. Anything or anyone other than our own guilt that's in it. Other than doing what David did after he had been caught in adultery in Psalm 51 when he said, It is against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. In this moment, I'm not throwing out a yeah, but. I'm not saying, well, I'm sorry, but you. In this moment, it is all about owning what I have to own so that I can bring this into the light and be forgiven and cleansed by God from my sin. Let me ask you a question because this is a question I've been asking myself in sermon prep all week When's the last time you took full responsibility for your sin? When's the last time you didn't drop a yeah, but, but you just owned your sin? And let me just tell you right now, if you're having to go back to the eighth grade to recall something right now, it is a good indication you may not understand the depth of your sin as you need to, as God would define it. It's sobriety, it's weight, it's effects where you would agree with God on the condition of your sin. Just own it. Just bring it into the light. Quit playing hide and seek. Quit blaming others. Just confess it. First John 1 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Come out, come out wherever you are and be free. And so there's the confrontation of sin that God is after right here. But there are consequences to sin. In verses 14 through 19 and following, there are real consequences. And the big idea here is sin does have consequences. It's unlike the serpent who tried to get us to believe there are no consequences to sin. No, there's always consequences. And what you see here in verses 14 through 19 is God handing down three speeches right here, three sets of judgments And they are in the reverse order in which God had confronted. So God confronted the man, then the woman, then the serpent. And now he is going to deliver the judgments in reverse order with the serpent, the woman, and the man. And in classic Hebrew structure of writing, the most significant or the most weighty one is at the very end. And it's on the man. But he begins with the serpent, verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. Three aspects of this curse on the serpent. He's gonna crawl on his belly, he's gonna eat of the dust, and he's ultimately gonna be crushed by the seed that will come from the woman. We'll deal with that last part here in just a moment, but I want you to see the progression. What this cursing is about, this is signifying the absolute total descent of Satan. He started on high as an angelic being. He rebelled against God. He was then cast down to earth. Now he shall be put on his belly. He shall eat of the dust. And eventually he will be crushed into that ground by the foot of the seed of the woman. The only place left to go for Satan, lower than that, is hell. And there he shall go in Revelation chapter 20. He who wanted to be on high is now cast as low as you can go. And many feel the reason the serpent here is now on his belly. So now he's transformed to a snake. Um, Whatever this serpent was, we talked about last week, was standing upright at some point and now will spend the rest of his days on his belly. It is a snake here the first time we see. And we are, many scholars believe that one of the reasons this happens is that every time that we see a snake, we are reminded of Satan's characteristics. He's slithery, he's deceiving. And when you least expect it, He has a bite filled with deadly poison. Now, some of y'all, I have no idea why, love snakes and keep them as pets. There's a special, special relationship that you must have with the Lord. I myself will run as far as I can from, I've had too many encounters, nothing like opening your dishwasher one time and having a snake hanging from the basket because it had crawled up through the pipe. That's another sermon for another day, y'all. Straight terror. The curse is real. But he moves on. He curses the woman in verse 16. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, one thing I want you to notice is when God curses the man and the woman, when it comes to the judgments that are handed down to them, this is very important, while the effects of the curse are many, and the rest of the scriptures will explain in detail how these curses play themselves out, the primary consequences that are named right here for the man and the woman are paralleled exactly with the primary sphere of responsibility that was given to both the man and the woman in the garden. These are not random curses right here, they correlate to the roles that were given them in Genesis 2. So remember for the woman, she was created as a perfect counterpart and helpmate for her husband. There's a marital component. And so together they would fulfill the creation mandate of of, uh, multiplying and filling the earth. There's a maternal component. And so it's no surprise that the two aspects of her judgment are expressed in two main ways, maternally and maritally. Maternally speaking, there's gonna be pain in childbirth. The Hebrew, when you read this, seems to indicate we're not just talking about only childbearing and the physical pain and labor, but it would seem to indicate all of child rearing as well. It's describing the pain that will be involved in raising the next generation from beginning to end. Yes, indeed, there is a physical pain and birth, so that I have been told. 
specifically by my mom, who on July 12th, 1974, was in labor for 48 hours with a 24-inch, 12-pound baby that was born breech and broke her tailbone. My mom believes in the curse. (laughs) She curses me every time she sees me because of that. So there's a physical pain. But I think what's included here is a holistic pain, a pain that would also include infertility, pain that would also include loss, pain that would also include a wayward child, pain that would also include the hardships in fostering and adoption, pain that will also include middle school kids. There is a pain, one of the unique roles for Eve was to be able to nurture the next generation in a way that Adam could not in bringing forth children. And what God is saying here is no longer, no longer will this process cooperate with you as it was designed to be. In other words, what what it is that will bring you great joy will also come with great pain. And it's a reminder of the curse. Meritally speaking, says that your desire will be contrary to your husband. He will rule over you. Much, much debated verse right here. But understand this, she who is given to her husband as a beautiful counterpart and helpmate, and he who is given to his wife as a sacrificial godly leader and protector as head of this union, there will now be a disruption in those roles. What was meant to come easy will now not cooperate with you. And your desire, what does that mean? How do we interpret desire and rule here? Two good words, just depends on how they're used. If this is taken in the positive, and many scholars have taught to make this be a sexual desire, let me just say, if sexual desire in a marriage is part of a curse, then Lord curse us all, right? (laughs) I mean, if this is a positive, then I'm not sure we understand this correctly. The best way to interpret this is you see it in the very next chapter. The Hebrew construction of Genesis 4-7 is the exact in the Hebrew of Genesis 3-16. It says this, and he's speaking of Cain, Adam and Eve's firstborn son, where sin is about to enter into his world And in verse seven, he says, if you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do well, understand this, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. And here it is, listen to this. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same Hebrew construction of that sentence as we see in chapter three here with the woman. And what God is saying is that from now on, there will be a struggle in your marriage. It will not come easy. There will be a pain and a work that will have to be done here. She will struggle for independence from God's complementary design with strong desires at time to overtake the mantle and authority that God has designed for the role of the husband. But he, while it is clear that God's design mantle will still be in place for him, even post fall, that rule many believe woven in here is going to be contaminated. That dominion will be contaminated at times with harsh, exploitive subjugation as we have seen in so many abuses in marriage. The point is that which was meant to bring you great joy is now going to come with great pain and it's gonna take work. 
And by the way, to this end, it's no surprise when the apostle Paul is counseling the marriages that were in the churches of Ephesus, he gives each of them a one word command in Ephesians 5.33. To the woman who may struggle to seek after his authority, respect your husband's and that mantle as unto the Lord. And to a man who may struggle to be harsh and domineering at times or passive and deferring at times, he says, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her sacrificially. Isn't it interesting? The two commands that God gives are rooted in the two curses that were handed out in Genesis 3. And so there is, there is a judgment issued over the woman, both maternally and maritally, but yet it's to the man in verses 17 to 19 that we get the longest of the three judgments here, the weightiest of the three. It says this to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Remember from chapter two, one of man's primary roles in the garden was to work and to keep it. And so here we find that no longer will the earth cooperate with the man in that task. Notice there are five times eating is mentioned in 17 through 19. Eating, just a very simple work of gathering food is going to come with toil. No longer will the ground be man's servant. The ground will now be man's adversary. There's a reason why if you just let a field go right now, it doesn't just cultivate on its own. It gets overtaken with weeds. You're gonna have to work hard now to maintain this because it will no longer cooperate with you. Something that was meant to bring you great joy will come now with great pain. You see the corollal all throughout these. And it's here we see the earth is cursed. And that includes not just thorns and thistles, but certainly earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, pandemics, diseases, germs. It's all in keeping with what Paul says in Romans 8, the earth is groaning for its day of redemption. Because why? It was subjected in futility. And so certainly while there is some common grace that we experience, in innovations to try to mitigate some of these pains, whether it be epidurals or doctors or doulas in childbearing, whether it be care and counseling and marriage struggles, whether it be post-agrarian advances in technology in our work, they all still come with pain. And ultimately what comes with this is death. The very dust that man was made from, to that very dust he shall return. One of the consequences is physical death and why we experience it here in our world. But of all the consequences handed out in the garden, undoubtedly the worst comes at the end of the passage when Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden and out of the very presence of God. I'm gonna skip a couple of verses, come back, but look at verse 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and thus live forever, 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All throughout scriptures, we hinted at this. Um, Whenever you see a garden in scripture, it's always representative of a temple. Gardens were like we know it today. They're not little planter boxes. They're out in your apartment balcony, you know, subduing the earth in a three by three. Um, Gardens, only kings had them. Kings were the ones that had gardens and they were well manicured. And it's no surprise that God begins creation by creating a garden to represent his glory and puts man and woman as vice regents to steward that glory there in that garden. But the temple in that imagery is where the presence of God was. The garden in this scene is where the presence of God was. That's where life was found. And now for the first time, man and woman will be removed from that temple. They'll be removed from the presence of God. And apparently there's another tree there, the tree of life. And again, that comes with his presence. And we won't see that tree again until Revelation chapter 22, when it shows up in the presence of God again. But right now, man is removed from his presence, and therefore we see another kind of death, not just physical death, but there's a spiritual death now, where man for the first time is alienated eternally from God. That is why God said, when you shall eat of this tree, you will die, die. You'll have a physical death, you will have a spiritual death. Now, understand this, there are still mercies available. They get to continue living, at least for a while, Adam's gonna live 930 years. We'll talk about that in chapter five. They get to continue in their marriage. We even see in verse 20 that Adam gets to name Eve. His dominion role still continues even after the fall. And then Eve, which by the way, her name means mother of the living is indicative of what's about to happen. She's about to give birth. They're gonna raise children. That itself is a mercy of nurturing the next generation, although through pain. And even in their banishment, even in the removal from the garden, there is a mercy there because God withholds them from eating of the tree of life. Had God not blocked that entrance and they can continue to stay in there, they would continue living in a fallen state. Do you want to live in this body for the rest of eternity? No. Do you want to live in this broken world for the rest of eternity? No. So even that is a mercy. Death is actually a mercy this side of heaven seen in this picture. But the fallout from the fall is devastating. Broken bodies that will die, broken relationships that will war, broken hearts that will be filled with pain, broken earth that will produce thorns and thistles, and most importantly, a broken relationship with God has us eternally separated from him under an irreversible curse marred by spiritual death. And yet Romans 5.12 tells us This is not just for Adam and Eve. This is for you and I. This is our condition. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death then spread to all men because all sinned. In this way, Adam is our federal head. What's true of him becomes true of us. Anyone who is born on this earth is in now Adam contaminated with sin. Psalm 51, conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity. 
Romans 3.23, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. This is the condition of every man and woman and it is irreversible and there is nothing that you and I can do about it. And so if this is our condition, the last question we got to ask in the last few minutes here is then what is the cure? If your Bible ended right here, it would be utter despair. But woven in this text are two beautiful promises of the cure for sin that we see. Two massive hints of where our cure for sin is gonna come from. Number one, it's gonna come through sacrifice. And number two, that will be provided by a savior. Through sacrifice, you see this in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, why did he do that? They've already been clothed. They clothed themselves in Genesis 3, 7 with fig leaves that they sewed for themselves. Problem is, is when you try to clothe yourself through your own works, it is never sufficient. It will not work before a holy and just God. So what does God do? He covers them. He covers you and I. How does he do it? Through sacrifice. Notice he uses animal skins instead of fig leaves. How do you get animal skins? You're gonna have to take the life of an animal to get their skin. So right here, if the penalty for sin is death that the scriptures tell us, then mere human religion is not gonna do. Your own works are not gonna do. It is gonna require a broken body and shed blood in order for your sin to be covered appropriately. This is the very first sacrifice of a living creation recorded in scripture. And it comes at the hand of God on behalf of his fallen creation. In this moment, the creator becomes the redeemer. And he takes this offering and he covers their nakedness and their shame. We get the word atonement for this. He atones their sinfulness. And this act will have echoes all the way through scripture and redemptive history with God's people. You'll see it with Abraham and Isaac. When God, Abraham's about to sacrifice, sacrifice Isaac and God brings along a provision, a ram who will be sacrificed in their place. You see it with Moses on Sinai and the giving of the Levitical law and the temple sacrifices where every time we would sin, you'd bring an animal to the temple and that animal would lose its life so you could keep yours. A work that man can never provide for himself is now being provided by God by his mercy and provision whereby our sin is covered and atoned for. But that work was always temporary. Sacrificing an animal was only a shadow of a better sacrifice that would come. Animals are not sufficient. That's why you had to keep doing the sacrifices. Humans are not sufficient because we're infected with sin. We needed someone who was unstained by sin, who would come along and lay down their life, giving their body and shedding their blood in our place so that we could be forgiven. Oh, but who would that be? I'm so glad you asked. Look back at verse verse 15 real quick. As God is judging the serpent, he says, not only is there gonna be enmity, there's gonna be enmity between you and the woman and your offspring. There's gonna be spiritual warfare. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but the prince of the power of the air is who's waging war against us. That's right here. But there's a promise. Did you catch it? And he, some male offspring from Eve, one of her descendants, is eventually going to bruise your head, Satan, or he's going to crush your head, literally translated. And in doing so, he will bruise your heel. 
He's gonna wound, Satan's gonna wound this person, but this person's going to defeat ultimately Satan. Now, who is this? It's the seed of a woman, some male. Eve believed that this was immediately going to be provided. When she has her first son, she names him Cain, which means here he is. It means I got him. The Lord provided him. She thought Cain was this redeemer. Oh, but he was far from it. He was a sinner just like she was. We needed somebody unstained. And so the rest of your Bible is unveiling the story of who this redeemer would be. And when you get to Luke chapter three, Luke is so careful to trace the genealogy in the Bible from Adam all the way to the redeemer named Jesus Christ, the son of man, meaning he's fully flesh. He's just like us, but he's also the son of God. He's not like us. He's fully divine. He's born of a virgin. He's unstained by the curse and he becomes obedient to God on our behalf, satisfying all the righteous requirements that the law demanded. And yet in his death and resurrection, when he would come, he would be bruised by Satan. He would be mocked, beaten, flogged and nailed to a tree. And yet through his death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection, he would be he would deliver the crushing blow, the terminal blow to the serpent of old by defeating him on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God that was on us, that was placed on him and giving us the righteousness that we could not earn or deserve as we put our trust in his work on that cross. It is all about Jesus. You need to know this, y'all. This is the beauty of the gospel. The Bible begins with one tree in which a curse was placed upon all humanity. But there was a day coming as promised here, what's known as the Proto-Evangelion, which simply means first gospel. The first news of hope was right there in 315, that there would be another tree in which the curse would be taken off of us and put on him so that in him, we could be forgiven. If you have yet to put your trust in Jesus Christ, I invite you, Ali Ali Oxenfree, come out of hiding. Come put your trust in Jesus Christ. Receive his provision through his provided sacrifice so that not by your works, but by his grace, you can be forgiven and cleansed and redeemed. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the hope that in the midst of a broken and fallen world, marred by the curse of sin, that you have promised and provided a savior, Jesus Christ for us. So God, may we not leave this place today in any undue shame, undue condemnation, but knowing that condemnation has been lifted, that we might be drawn in faith to Jesus Christ and receive the mercy that we so need to have our shame covered and to be free and forgiven. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.